0: Pinch him, pinch him, black and blue, Saucy mortals must not view What the queen of stars is doing, Nor pry into our fairy wooing. Pinch him blue, and pinch him black, Let him not lack sharp nails To pinch him blue and red, Till sleep has rocked his addle head. For the trespass he hath done, Spots o'er all his flesh shall run. Kiss Endymion, kiss his eyes, Then to our midnight hide a guise. John Lyley fairy revels
1: welcome to femme macabre a podcast about life's mysteries oddities and of course the macabre macabre, hosted by stephanie malage and aaron vance
0: Since time immemorial, tales of fairy creatures wearing mushroom cap hats frolicking in the meadows have been told. Over time, these fairy creatures have changed and adapted to fit within our world and perspectives. They've changed now, they've changed before, we've gone through many different variations of the fairy creatures that we see today. Today, they're known as cute, Tinkerbell-like creatures who flit around like fireflies.
1: They haven't always been that way. Nope. And today we'll be exploring the magical lore of fairy folk and the evolution of human belief in fairies, as well as discuss the renowned Cottingley Fairy incident. Truth or hoax? What do you think? When you hear the word fairy, what do you imagine? Do you picture tiny, smaller-than-the-eye-can-see-winged creatures who laze about in flower bells? Or do you envision three-foot-tall, troll-like creatures who stir up some trouble just for the hell of it? Well, you might be surprised to know that both are accurate. Fairy lore may have prevailed in the mythology of the ancient Celts and the literature of the Middle Ages. But tales of fey folk continue to grace us to this day as they have for centuries. So to say that fairies have fascinated humans for a long time is an understatement. Throughout history, these tiny fey creatures have evolved to fit within our own empirical understanding of the world we live in, and we have many poets, playwrights, and artists to thank for the rich descriptive imagery and detailed illustrations that have helped solidify our knowledge of the fairy realm. Tales about the Tuatha de Danann, the people of the Irish goddess of Danu, tell us that there was once a race of people who possessed incredible magical powers who lived among us mortals. These followers of Danu were known by many different names and could even appear in various forms. From brownies to selkies, pixies, gremlins, and even leprechauns, these creatures and many others were all considered by the ancient Celts to be different species of fairies. The tales also tell us that these people lived peacefully alongside us humans for many centuries. As humans, however, our curiosity and desire to know more about the unknown or of mysterious worlds has often been destructive, bringing about the end of many people and cultures. Unfortunately, as you'll come to learn from today's episode, our relationship with fairy folk is honestly not so different. In ancient texts, battles between fairies and mortals drove the fairies underground. Similarly, in recorded history, battles between Christians and Celtic tribes during the 8th century BCE drove pagan beliefs and the fair folk underground as well. Whatever your beliefs, the displacement of the tribe of Danu did not succeed in eradicating them. Instead, their disappearance from our own mortal world made way for the mythologization of the Tuatha de Danann and the conceptualization of an other world, or a fairy realm, where their people could find refuge from prying human eyes. Tirnanog, also known as the Land of Youth, is one of the many names for this underground realm. Although its geographical location has long been debated, the ancient Celts believed Tirnanog to be beneath Ireland, the reason being its magnificent landscape, of course. The space beneath its many hills and mountains make for a perfect sanctuary, and hidden pathways and portals to tir are said to exist throughout the region. However, they are so well hidden by fairy magic that it would be nearly impossible for humans to find them. tir is a reflection of our mortal world. The best way to describe it would be to compare it to Tolkien's Middle Earth, in the way that its economics, politics, and even social structures all mirror our own The fairy world itself is divided into different regions and kingdoms and is also home to many other magical species, not just fairies. Thanks in part to Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream, Driton's Nymphidia, Spencer's Fair Queen, and many other fairy tales of the time, the 16th century experienced a massive shift in the way fairies were perceived by humans. Like an artistic literary renaissance, Fairy tales were no longer considered lowbrow pagan oral tales, but rather as these rich and intricate pieces of literature and art. They were believed to be much, much smaller than the fae folk of Danu, appearing to us humans instead as beautiful winged creatures similar in size to insects like dragonflies and butterflies. Fun fact, the first ever recorded image of a winged fairy was an illustration in Alexander Pope's The Rape of the Lock. The artist who made the illustrations for the poem decided to add little butterfly and dragonfly-like wings to the fairies in the image.
0: It's so interesting that it took all the way into
1: Pope until Pope to have fairies with wings. Right? Well, like the fairies of the Celts, Elizabethan fairies were still very much a part of and involved within our mortal world. Despite having their own fairy realm, fairies were believed to have stayed in very close contact with humans. Not only was it their duty to decorate our flower petals with striking colors and intricate patterns, but like their Celtic counterparts, they would reward the good and the hard-working and provide good fortune and luck for those who left them offerings. However, fairies could also be quite mischievous. Known for sometimes pulling pranks on unsuspecting humans, fairies could also up the ante at any moment and deliver a vicious revenge against those who've crossed them or gotten their curious noses way too deep in fairy business or even bringing justice down on wrongdoers and never-do-wells. With the rise of Puritanism in the late 16th and early 17th century, however, fairies were once again forced to retreat into their own realm. This fairy world was home to all kinds of fae creatures, and was quite otherworldly in comparison to Tirnanog. Fairy, spelled F-A-E-R-Y, is a realm that exists parallel to our own rather than below ground. It was ruled by King Oberon and Queen Titania, who were said to reign from their beautiful palace made of mother and pearl. Unfortunately, not much else is actually known about the fairy realm. This is due in part by the fairy's secretive and protective nature, but also in part to the fact that time in fairy does not progress as it does here on Earth. Easily lured into the fairy world with promises of eternal youth and beauty, Many mortals attempting to return after a visit to fairy would quickly realize that many many human years had gone by and without the fairy magic of the other realm these mortals would return to our world old and frail and after all who would believe the fairy tales of an old madman
0: We may not believe the fairy tales of an old madman, but we have a propensity for believing fairy tales told to us by beautiful young women. In 1917, two cousins in West Yorkshire took some photographs that would mesmerize the world for over 100 years, enchanting people from all walks of life, including the creator of Sherlock Holmes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. The two young cousins, Elsie Wright and Francis Griffiths, we're thrilled to finally have playmates when Frances and her mother moved to Cottingley from South Africa during World War I. Both were only children, and they spent hours playing in the woods behind their home together. But when they returned and Frances was soaking wet or dirty from playing in the beck or small stream, her mother would berate her and sometimes even beat her. The right home was situated at the highest point in the village and boasted a large garden with a bubbling stream at the bottom. The girls spent so much time at the Beck in the summer of 1917 that they would bring sandwiches with them, even though it was only a few steps from their house. The girls began to report to their parents they had discovered fairies living in the stream behind their home. And that was why Frances was often dirty or damp. She had been cavorting with the fairies in the water. This did not satiate their parents, for obvious reasons. Elsie, who was older and worked in a photography studio requested use of her father's camera so that the girls could provide photographic evidence of the fairies. Her father was an amateur photographer and had his own dark room in the family home under the stairs. At first Arthur Wright would not lend the girls use of the camera, but after several days of begging he acquiesced. He gave them one plate, one chance at taking a photo. The girls took the camera out one day and when they returned, huddled into the small dark room with Arthur to see what they had captured what slowly appeared in the glass plate would change the course of history and the lives of both families forever. What the girls had captured on the single plate showed nine-year-old Frances looking wistfully into the camera as five or so fairies danced around her. The fairies are in the foreground, Frances is in focus in the center of the photo, and in the background is the small waterfall that feeds the beck. Their father was astonished and then skeptical, the girls had to be playing a joke, right? There was no way that fairies were real. The girls, however, swore that the fairies were there, and that they saw them all of the time. But they also noted that Arthur would never see him, see them, for he was an adult. Now, photography was relatively new at the time, and most people had never had their photo taken, never mind taken a photo and developed it themselves. Arthur tried to figure out how the girls could have faked the photo, But considering that he himself had developed the photo on a plate that he supplied, he was absolutely certain that the plate had not been tampered with before or after the photo was taken. Of course, like today, trick photography was popular, but involved painting on plates or using double exposure in most cases. In fact, Elsie was actually trained in the Photoshop techniques of the time at the photography studio that she worked at. She painted out blemishes and touched up photos in that manner. A few months later, that fall, the girls were given another plate, and this time the photo was of Elsie, and she was holding hands with what looked like a gnome. Elsie's father was now convinced that they were tricking him, though they would not confess and he could not figure out how. Polly Wright, Elsie's mother, on the other hand, was beginning to believe that the fairies at the back were real. That winter, Frances sent a copy of one of the photos to a friend in South Africa, And on the back she wrote, Elsie and I are very friendly with the Beck fairies. It is funny. I never used to see them in Africa. It must be too hot for them there. When World War I ended, Francis' father returned and the Griffiths moved to Scarborough. The cousins once again lived as only children, two hours apart. The next summer, Polly Wright attended a lecture given by the Theosophical Society, a society dedicated to exploring the unexplained supernatural forces. They explored spiritualist beliefs, mediumship, the existence of supernatural creatures, and more. At this meeting, she showed the photographs to Edward Gardner, a friend of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, creator of one Sherlock Holmes. Doyle was an ophthalmologist by trade, and on two separate occasions he channeled his famous detective by using his medical training to solve crimes in which he was able to judge that the alleged perpetrators could not have committed their crimes based on their eyesight. The writer-physician's brilliance would be called into question, however, by his association with the Cottingley fairy photographs. When Gardner showed him the fairy photographs, the timing was perfect. Doyle was actually preparing to write an article on fairies for the Strand magazine, which was very popular in England at the time. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was a firm believer in fairies, and he explained his belief by saying that due to his training as an ophthalmologist, he could, asc- he could ascertain that children's eyesight was much, much sharper than adults. Therefore, to him, it made perfect sense that the only two people that could actually capture photographs of fairies and play with them were two young girls. Adults, he believed, did not possess the accurate eyesight in order to do so. After negotiations with the rights, he was permitted to reproduce the photos and tell the story for the magazine. He did so, however, without printing the girls' names or the name of their village. So while this article was being written and published, um, Edward Gardner asked a photographer, Harold Snelling, who had 30 years of experience, which back then was pretty much as much experience with photography as you could have in 1920, Um, And Snelling was pretty sure that these were very accurate photographs. And he actually believed that while the photo was being taken, the fairies had moved. And of course, if the fairies were moving in the photograph, that meant that they were real, right? So Edward Gardner then gave Elsie and Frances their own camera to take photos with. Now, Elsie and Frances lived fairly far apart, so they weren't actually able to get together to take photos very often. And when Gardner would write back to Polly Wright and Elsie Wright, he would often receive letters saying, the weather hasn't been very good lately, or Elsie's been sick, Elsie's been busy, Frances hasn't been able to come down, any number of excuses. And so despite the fact that the two girls had a camera, despite the fact that Elsie Wright was trained as a photographer's assistant, and despite the fact that Arthur Wright had a darkroom under the stairs in their home, Francis and Elsie only ever took five fairy photographs. The two that we mentioned, um, Francis with the fairies and Elsie with the gnome, and three others. On August 26, 1920, the two girls managed to take two more pictures. There were the original two pictures taken in 1917, and then two more. So... There's one of Francis looking at a fairy, and the fairy is kind of hovering above a branch, and then there's another one of Francis looking at a fairy, and she's surrounded by greenery and foliage. On August 28th of 1920, they took the fifth and final picture, and this picture is what many people think is the most interesting and most compelling Cottingley fairy photograph of all. It is Often referred to as the sunbath of the fairies, it doesn't include Francis or Elsie. And in the photo, it looks like a cocoon made of grass surrounded by fairy creatures. The first two photographs appeared in the December 1920 issue of The Strand. um, And the headline was The Two Most Astonishing Photographs Ever Published. And the issue sold out in three days.
1: Clickbait right there.
0: Right? This is old-timey clickbait, for sure. (laughs) So, everybody was very into this, and when we look back on it, we are met mostly with criticism for Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and how could he be so gullible? He created Sherlock Holmes. How did this happen? But at the time, this was met very positively by the public. As we'll find out later, there was a lot of reasons for people to believe in fairies and other supernatural entities in the 1920s, especially after World War I. So what what were the arguments for these photographs being faked? First of all, if you look at a very if you look at one of the original photographs, and most of the versions you'll find on the internet have been like doctored, or they've been copied and pasted, downloaded, uploaded so many times that they're quite blurry and difficult to look at, or they've had like color added in, or they've been like photoshopped in one way or another, you can see how easy it is to alter these photos mm-hmm. by the fact that we superimposed ourselves onto two of the photos and uploaded them to Instagram a, w- a couple weeks yeah. <laughs> ago, it's not hard to doctor the original Cottingley photographs these days. But we do have original transcripts of letters between people trying to authenticate or disprove these photos. One of the biggest indicators that these photographs might not have been completely real was the fact that The waterfall behind Francis in the first photograph was blurry, but the fairies were not. And in this photograph, obviously the waterfall is moving. Obviously, Francis is not moving as she's posing for a photograph. So if the fairies are also moving as the waterfall is, they should also be blurry. But they aren't. They're very, very crisp and clear. But of course, our friend Arthur had... An answer for this and his answer was that fairies are a combination of human and butterfly so their wings were not blurred because the fairy body doesn't work like either a human or a butterfly does so somehow this amalgamation of human and butterfly equals no blur when wings are moving so Another question people had was, why isn't Francis looking at fairies? Like, if you're surrounded by fairies, why are you bothering to look at a camera? And of course their answer was that Francis and Elsie see fairies every day. It's not a big deal. They just wanted to take pictures. Fair enough. I can believe that. I guess. If you see fairies all the time, it's probably not a big deal.
1: Meh Um, fairies.
0: (laughs) uh, (laughs) So the main reason that the photographer that um, Edward Gardner spoke to and other people at the time had, the most compelling reason they had for the fact that these were not faked photographs was that the two girls came from decent families and they had no history of hoaxing. How could two upstanding members of society possibly create a hoax? And a few months later, the Strand and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, wrote another article called The Evidence for Fairies, and this article included the last three photos. So obviously, these photos were very clearly of two young women, and eventually people figured out where Cottingley was, who the girls in the photographs were, and of course, chaos descended upon the sleepy town of Cottingley, and Frances and Elsie became quite overwhelmed, quite famous, and they were getting older. The first photographs were taken in 1917 when Francis, the youngest, was nine, and now we're in, like, 1923. So they're mid to late teens. They're growing up. They want to say goodbye to this legacy of fairies, to whatever has led them here, and they just, they want to move on. They got married in 1926 and 1928, respectively, and eventually people stopped bothering them. Until the late 60s. So a journalist tracked down Elsie, who was then 64 years old, and this started all over again. So (laughs) I found an article that's really interesting. It is called The Curse of the Cottingley Fairies, How a Professor's Life Was Ruined When He Fell For a Children's Hoax. This was published by the Irish Mirror in 2017, which would have been the 100-year anniversary of the first fairy photograph. There's this professor named Joe Cooper. In the 60s and 70s became obsessed with the Cottingley fairies. He ran into a friend of Francis and Elsie's at the grocery store who was very gossipy and was very happy to talk to him. And... He fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. He ended up contacting Francis and Elsie and spending a lot of time with the women. This guy, he was in the military. He was a professor. He was an upstanding, reliable dude. And he took Francis out for a day. And Francis and him became fast friends. And she told him all about the fairies and what it was like to be the girl in the Cottingley Fairy photographs. And Joe was taken in. He was thrilled. This was a life changing moment for him. And he spent a few years tirelessly championing interest in the Cottingley Fairies and being very public about his belief in Francis and Elsie, being very public about his belief in fairies, and being extremely public. And how he believed these photographs were authentic. It's
1: putting all your eggs in one basket. (laughs) It's really putting your eggs in one basket.
0: So in 1981, Joe and Frances were at Canterbury Cathedral. And Frances had a copy of one of the pictures. She showed it to Joe. And she pointed out the hat pins that were holding up cutout pictures of fairies that Elsie had drawn. She confessed that it was a hoax. And she noted that she was surprised that anybody had ever taken it seriously. Nine months later, Joe disappeared. (gasps) He left his wife of 23 years and their children, and he just kind of vanished. He said that his entire world shifted upon hearing the news that Francis and Elsie had faked the photographs. So, at the time of his disappearance, he'd already sent an article exposing the scam to Unexplained Magazine, and... Essentially, he never mentioned it, he bottled this up, he left his wife and children, and he
1: disappeared. He literally just vanished? Eventually
0: he reappeared, but by the time he reappeared, his wife was like, okay, I could deal with your interest in the paranormal, I could deal with your eccentricities and your friendship with this old woman, but, you know, when you found out it wasn't real, you left me and the kids and just straight up disappeared for months at a time, so... I'm sorry, Joe, but we gotta end things here.
1: Which fair, fair play to her. I, I get it. I thought you were gonna tell me that when he reappeared, he was old, and I was gonna be like, he went to fairy.
0: <laughs> I mean, that would make a much better story for sure. Because honestly, this isn't. This is also a fairly clickbaity article. Oh, yeah. and I'll get into that in a second. <laughs> so, during the course of his divorce, he wrote a book called "The Case of the Cottingley Fairies." And if you've ever seen the 1990-something film Fairy Tale, A True Story, which was extremely formative to young Aaron, this is based upon his book. So good old Joe was referred to as a former Nerves of Steel bomber commander. He was referred to as a war hero that was never the same after the earth-shattering news of finding out that the Cottingley fairy photographs were a hoax. 30 years later, he died of heart failure, as a broken man, most of his family believes that his death was a direct result of finding out that the photographs that he spent so much time advocating for were fake.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: Okay, this is a quote from his daughter, Jane. Okay. It's a curse. They created a web of lies. Maybe they did see fairies, but it was inexcusable to carry on the deception as mature women when they had multiple chances to confess. They should have taken their secret to the grave so it could have been one of those great mysteries like the Loch Ness Monster. Dad was a tough guy. He had been in charge of the crew of Lancaster Bomber during the war and suffered near-death experiences. But when he found out he had been duped, we think he suffered some kind of breakdown. My father died penniless and left nothing. A relative wrote that at the end of his life, even his beloved fairies had left him. Dad was a wonderful man and a great father. His flaw was that he was too trusting. And so Joe's daughter is writing a TV script about what she calls the curse of the Cottingley Fairies. She is clearly very deeply affected by her father's death and his relationship to the Cottingley Fairies, um, and really believes that Francis and Elsie took advantage of him because he was incredibly generous. She states that he gave away more copies of his book than he sold, and he didn't make any money from the film. Um, she essentially is saying that even today, Francis and Elsie's hoax is continuing to affect and ruin lives. Now, Francis's daughter, Christine Lynch, who is 85, he, she now lives in Belfast, she has she has a rebuttal to Joe's daughter's statement. It isn't true at all, she said. He was not a broken man. He got the story. He was delighted and sold, goodness ho- and sold goodness knows how many books. My mother was furious. She did not expect to be betrayed. She rang him up, told him he was a traitor, and slammed the phone down on him. Even after that, he continued to try to contact her. He wrote page after page of letters, but she wanted nothing more to do with that man. He charmed her. He used to visit and play for her on his ukulele and offered to help her write her memoirs. I can't believe his family are saying this. The centenary of when my mother started playing with the fairies is going to be a big year. Was it? I don't think it was that big of a year (laughs) because I don't remember (laughs) this. And I've been obsessed with the Cottingley Fairies since I was like four years old. So I don't think the centenary made a huge difference. No. So the interesting thing about Francis's daughter, Christine Lynch is that she believes that the first four photos were faked but she is completely convinced by the fifth one and i don't know if this this is apocryphal or kind of a bit more of folklore but allegedly frances admitted that all the first four photographs were faked but she always maintained until she died that the fifth one the fairy sunbath it's like the cocoon with the fairies dancing around it was real mm. In 1976, a TV show filmed Francis and Elsie returning to Cottingley for the first time since the 1920s when they were children. And so they didn't see fairies, and at this time they said that, of course, only children can. I think it's really interesting that there's still a huge divide, not necessarily about whether the photographs were real or not, But whether Francis and Elsie were these, like, vindictive little women hoaxing the world, or if they were just two young women, two young girls having fun with a camera. I mean, they
1: were literally children, so... (laughs) Yeah.
0: And I mean, if we look at the advent of, like, teenagehood, it wasn't until, like, the 1950s that teenagers were really a thing. So Elsie, as a 16-year-old working in a photography studio, was generally considered an adult, but, I mean, Francis was a child, and they played in a back like children, mm-hmm. and I'm inclined to believe that Francis and Elsie were, in fact, two children. I don't think they necessarily meant to hoax the world and be vindictive, mm-hmm. but there are theories that Francis and Elsie were not the Cottingley Fairy photographers. Fiona Marr, who wrote The Secret of the Cottingley Fairies, which is a very interesting book, and probably the most succinct account of the Cottingley Fairies and their influence, and especially how Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Edward Gardiner related to the family. In this book, Fiona Maher puts forth the theory that Arthur Wright, Elsie Wright's father, was the actual photographer of the Cottingley Fairies, and that the girls took the fall for this hoax once it got out because it would legitimately ruin his life if people had found out that he had tried to hoax Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. But if two young women had- two young girls had taken the photographs then even if they were proven to be fakes they couldn't necessarily like be sent to jail or like vilified in the media to the extent that Arthur Wright could be.
1: One random thought that I just had and I'm actually more inclined to believe it now knowing a little bit more about Elsie's backstory. Um, and her experience as working for her father in his photography studio and retouching photos, I'm almost inclined to believe that maybe Elsie, as the older girl, was maybe just trying to, like, play with Francis and, like, be part of the fun. And so by creating those photos and superimposing them, it's kind of like bringing Francis's fairy world to life.
0: And I think that is completely possible because... In all the accounts I've read, at least for, like, the development of the first photograph is very well mm-hmm. documented, and Frances was outside of the darkroom, and Elsie and her father were inside yeah. of the dark room. So it's
1: very well that it was just, like, a well-meaning, thoughtful gift, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, when you go to Disney World, and you have the Disney photographers who ask families to, like, put your hands together, and then they put... Tinkerbell or Stitch from Lilo and Stitch in your hands yeah, or you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's basically that, but 1920s. <laughs> in
0: 1977, they figured out kind of how these photographs were mm-hmm. made. So a writer named Fred Gettings was doing research for a book about old illustrations, and he came across a book called Princess Mary's Gift Book, published in 1914. And on page 104 he noticed that the illustrations accompanying a poem called A Spell for a Fairy looked pretty much identical to the fairies in the Cottingley Fairy photographs. So it turns out that what had actually happened and how the photographs had been faked was that Elsie, who was quite a good um, artist, she, she copied illustrations out of Princess Mary's gift book and cut them out and put them on hat pins, which would have been pretty much invisible to the camera. Hmm. So they were essentially little cardboard figures on sticks. I was going to
1: say, there was probably like fishing line involved in this or something.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: As most hoaxes are. <laughs> and that's
0: how they were faked. And yeah, in 1983, when Elsie was 81 and Francis was 75, they... Elsie admitted that they had faked the photos. Um, this was the first time it was kind of public. The article that Joe wrote didn't really gain much traction, um, but Elsie discussed it in an interview, and that's kind of when the story came to its conclusion, supposedly. Yeah, of course there are many people who still believe the photographs are real. Um, I mean, it took me a lot of research and reading to convince myself that they weren't real, and I'm still. Not present sure about that fifth photo, but I really, really (laughs) want to believe in fairies. And I think that's also why people still believe in it.
1: So I just want to backtrack a little bit about the Cottingley fairies and talk about how and why the hoax may have been so believable. The invention of the microscope during the Victorian period, just less than a decade before these photos came out, played a big role in the resurgence of fairy lore. This discovery of the microscopic world opened up the possibilities of true miniature worlds within our own. And after all, if microscopic creatures could live under fallen tree bark and on the tops of mushroom caps, why couldn't there be fairies doing the same? Victorian empiricism, however, and man's reckless curiosity and and pursuit of scientific knowledge helped destroy the image of fairies as Celtic and pagan spirits and gods, instead reducing them down to dainty, innocent, and childlike creatures. Now, there's also been lots of debate about the origins of fairies during the 19th century, which leads into a lot of the Theories that Aaron mentioned earlier about the Cottingley fairies and why or why not we might be able to see them. Anthropologists at the time believed fairies to be mythologized memories of other, more primitive peoples, while linguists believed that they evolved out of a misunderstanding of metaphorical language. A lot of others, like those in the medical profession, believed that fairies were hallucinations caused by sun or heat stroke. However, even within the scientific community, there was so much tension. Those who believed in fairies would be mocked mercilessly and were painted as fools within the scientific community. While many were so quick to disprove the existence of fairies, however, true believers saw this as being one step closer to finally solving the mystery and proving that fairies were real. Right, by eliminating all the ways that they weren't real, you're getting closer to finding the ways that they could actually be real. Whatever science could prove or not, the Victorians strongly believe that fairies were everywhere, but that no matter how observant you may be, seeing one would be impossible. They believe that the fairy world was veiled from us humans, either through our own physical or visual limitations as mortals, or due to the lack of imagination, right? As Aaron said, the Connolly Fairy Girls, Elsie mm-hmm. and Frances, came out later in life saying that, oh no, only children can see fairies. And so if you truly believed in fairies, you might be lucky enough to actually catch a glimpse.
0: I actually totally believe that, like, very small children and very elderly people have a much better chance of, like, seeing
1: ghosts and being connected to an other world. Oh, same. I absolutely believe that, too. Our perception of fairies changed again in 1904 with J.M. Barry's Peter Pan. He used fairies as a tool to hook the audience in during his stage productions of the show, and he shifted the typical empirical portrayal that we had been seeing about fairies during the Victorian period to this one of nostalgia and childhood wonderment. And so although Tinkerbell was nothing but a little electric light on the stage, the audience was quick to participate in clapping and chanting to save that little flickering light's life to prove that they still do believe in fairies. I do believe in fairies. I, I do. do. I, I do. I do. I do believe in fairies. I, I do. do. I, I do. do. I have vivid memories of chanting that in the movie theater when I went to go see the 2003 live-action film, <laughs> which I think will forever live in my heart because Jeremy Sumter played a very, very, very cute Peter Pan in my opinion. Oh my gosh. That was very much two thousand and three. How old was I? I must have been eight or nine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean same, I'm only what a year older than you, so around the same age. But like I vividly remember seeing this movie and being like, whoa. that was that was an awakening. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Um
0: Yep. (laughs) I remember having a lot of posters of Jeremy Sumter's Peter Pan in my bedroom. And nice. And I also was obsessed with Tinkerbell. I, my Pixo website because. Do you remember Pixo website? <gasps> I had so many Pixo websites. Oh, you can <laughs> you're gonna love the title of my original Pixo website? It's called Oh gosh. Xoxo Dash Tinkerbell Cheesecake Princess Dash Xox.
1: Nice. I think I've blocked out every single memory that I have of ever using Pixo. I cannot remember what any of my websites were called. I feel like, I don't know. I wish there was a way for me to go back and try to find them. I know. Erin, tell us about your new ring. Oh, yeah.
0: So, dear listeners of Femme Macabre, I'm getting married. And I'm very excited about it. And Erin has (laughs) the most gorgeous fairy princess ring. It truly makes me feel like a fairy princess. Mm -hmm. It's the most beautiful thing on the planet. I can't get over it. Like I look at it all the time. But it's 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 so beautiful. It's rose gold and morganite, so it's like a really beautiful peachy diamondy stone. It's related to emeralds. I'll post a picture <laughs> on Instagram
1: because it's just too pretty. Yeah. I can't handle it. All right. Well, thanks for tuning into our first episode in quite a while, you guys. It's funny to think that the only thing we're consistently being Good at doing with this podcast is being completely inconsistent. But hey, we're only human. Yeah, we're not fairies. We're not magical creatures. <laughs> we're just trying to live our life. We are. <laughs> we're trying to live our lives
0: between COVID and both working full time and also being like writers and publishers and having pets and, mm-hmm. you know, trying to have lives as much as you can have a life right now. We're doing our best. Mm-hmm. We love our listeners. Yeah. We love Femacob, Cobb, and we hope to eventually have a really consistent schedule and really dedicate more time to this. But as of right now, it seems that the tagline of consistently inconsistent is our best bet. Thanks for tuning in. I am very sorry in advance for all of the dog barking in the background. As I said that, she started screeching.
1: If you enjoyed today's episode of Cobb, we hope you consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our podcast.
0: If you're into social media, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Cobb. That's where you'll find
1: all five of the Cottingly Fairy photographs. And don't forget to tune in next week when we talk about what to not put up your vagina. And the answer
0: is pretty much everything, including most penises. <laughs>